What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in South Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nihar Gayadav, the host of this episode, and I'm joined by Professor Prachi Dejpande, Associate Professor in History at the Center for Studies in Social Sciences in Kolkata. And we're in conversation about her book, Scripts of Power, Writing, Language Practices, and Cultural History in Western India, published by Ashoka University and Permanent Black in 2023. Professor Deshpande, welcome to the podcast. It is wonderful to be in conversation today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Okay. Uh, so before we start, just to give our listeners a very broad overview, Scripts of Power charts a rich and layered cultural history of Mori script over a span of 400 years, bringing to light a multilingual, multi-structural, linguistic, and scribal world in its transition from early modern to colonial forms of rule. Mori's cultural history is firmly grounded in medieval practices of writing, spanning scribal, religious, and literary contexts. Professor Deshpande's account of what she calls the scriptural economy of Mori offers new ways to study the links between language, writing practices, bureaucratic power on the one hand, and everyday self and collective identities on the other hand. The narrative itself weaves together an impressive range of manuscript and archival sources from a host of regional archives spread across Western and Southern India. So in order to do justice to the vastness and complexity of her research, and to make this task less daunting for myself, I'm going to frame my question around certain key narratives, uh, such as the transition from the Persianate to the Marathi, or the transition from the pre-modern to the colonial, that Professor Deshpande's work questions and reassesses. So I want to start by asking you about the transition from exploring memory and identity in your first book, Creative Pass, to the study of scripts and writing practices in this one. In the book, you mentioned how you set off to write an account of the socio-cultural world of scribes and instead ended up writing this multilingual history of Mori's script. But would you agree that one of the arguments that the book makes is that attention to the cultural and material life of the script offers a singular lens to study the social history of scribal worlds? Yes. Uh, in my first book, Creative Pasts, I had uh, touched very briefly on the scribes who produced prose histories like 
the Pakhars in the 18th century. And having read and enjoyed very much the rich historiography on early modern scribal worlds, I wanted to walk further for my next project on Maratha scribes who migrated to different parts of the subcontinent. And initially, I was interested in a straightforward sociological history, you know, looking for kin networks and patterns of migration from particular areas of Maharashtra to plot the role of caste and family links in shaping the nature of this, this migration. But um, I kept encountering administrative records in the Modi script in different regions where the Marathas had held sway. And these records themselves were usually in multilingual bundles, right, with Persian and one or two regional languages, Tamil and sometimes Telugu in Tanjavur and Kraudi in Malwa, uh, etc. And I was trying to make sense of these materials uh, for a while, trying to figure out how these languages work together and where Marathi and Modi fit into it all. And eventually I, I came to focus on the Modi script itself as a way into the scribal world. And I asked somewhat different questions, like what domains was the script used in? Were there any specific discourses or practices governing its usage? What could it tell us about the nature of record keeping, archiving and multilingual scribal skills? And also how all of this changed in the colonial period, uh, uh, you know, when Modi was in use until very recently. Uh, so with these questions, I sort of decided to go where the script would take me and see what different aspects of writing and language it would open up for me back into the early modern, but also into the, the colonial period. Um, but via this focus on the domains and ideas about Modi's usage, I was able to look back to social power, caste uh, and language in a way in the end. Uh, because Modi was used almost exclusively for business writing, for administrative records, correspondence, etc. And Barbot, which was the regional variant of Devnagri, was used for sacred and, and literary texts. So Modi's usage rested on this demarcation into a laukic uh, or profane domain that was separate from sacred or literary spaces. And of course, there are instances where you can find the scripts together, but this broad demarcation allowed Brahmin literati to seek employment with Muslims or non-Bravo chiefs without losing their own social uh, ritual power. Uh, and scribal manuals also extol this as one of the virtues of, of Modi. So comparing these ideas about the usage of, of the different scripts and discourses of good writing also opened up the material world of writing for me, in interesting ways, uh, from paper and ink to physical spaces of work to bodily and mental comportments of, of, of scribes. And all these were, were shot through with anxieties of caste. And therefore, I was able to talk about the scribal social world in a different uh, way. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, just to pick up on the thread about the expansion of, you know, Mori writing, particularly in administrative uh, use, uh, you begin your analysis with the account of the expansion of Marathi writing and documentation in Modi in, from the 1650s onwards, both within and outside the core territories of the Maratha state. And you show um, how, you know, you show the many competing imperatives and social actors that shape Marathi writing practice across different levels of the bureaucratic hierarchy. So can I invite you to elaborate for our listeners the ways in which your attention to Modi writing practices in particular defines uh, conventional accounts of the centralizing Maratha state in this period. 
yes. Uh, so the conventional narrative has emphasized Chhatrapati Shivaji bringing together dispersed Maratha chiefs into a more centralized and independent Maratha state in the late 17th century um, with a kind of tight and hierarchical administration from the Ashtapradhan ministers at the top to the Kulkarni accountants in, in villages. And for the 18th century, this framework grew into what was known as the Maratha Confederacy, right? The Peshwa at the top, uneasily, uneasily sort of sharing power with the Chhatrapati. And then there were various chiefs in different regions and again, a kind of hierarchical system from, from top to bottom. And this conventional narrative has emphasized the, the normative uh, top-down uh, picture, as it were, with different functionaries, various tasks. But... Uh, the actual picture that you get from an enormous archive of administrative correspondence at different levels, from manuals, from legal materials, is of a much more complex and fraught world of documentation. And I wanted to try and capture some of that, uh, what it might have been like at an everyday level. And I've tried to show that this focus on the processes of documentation and their tensions allows us to see many contradictory practices up close within this broad process of a centralizing Maratha uh, state. Um, so Frank Pollen um, had argued a long time ago that uh, the household was the kind of building block right, of early modern state formation. And drawing on his argument, uh, what I've done is, is uh, present a picture of state formation where there were definitely centralizing pulls and, and measures, first under Shivaji and then more so under the, the Peshwas, but also highlighted a kind of tension with more local sources of power in different ways uh, of dispersed archiving practices with, you know, the sheer diversity of the, the local in, in terms of language and, and documentation. So, um, for example, I've used records of disputes over scribal positions um, alongside kind of normative orders and appointments to understand how mundane writing tasks were, were distributed right, and fought over in, in offices. And we see how the actual writing of a document involved inputs from multiple scribes. Initially, this is part of the parceling of local hereditary offices and is an effect of the deepening of the administration at the, the village level. But um, this fragmentation of writing labor throughout the documentary work, it also grows into a system of routinized procedures of, of checks and, and surveillances as the Maratha bureaucracy expands in the 18th century. So uh, there's a contradiction there in that scribal knowledge as a whole involved language, numeracy, diplomatic comportment, all of it together in one body. But the writing process itself remains fragmented between various writery bodies, as it were, to guard against forgery and, and, and bribery. And another contradiction we can see is, for instance, between written and, and local language. Uh, there's a broad trend from oral testimonies in front of local assemblies uh, to directly written statements submitted to centrally constituted panchayats in legal procedures in, in the Deccan. And uh, Polio Hanlan has written extensively about this, uh, which is a feature of centralization under the, the Peshwas. And this process of documenting oral speech in Modi script, it also shaped a more standardized Marathi bureaucratic prose over, over time. But even in this trajectory, a closer look at, at some of these processes of negotiation uh, tells us how 
oral practices continue to be important to legal process. And this, I think, is a portion against an automatic assumption that the use of Modi necessarily meant a uniform Marathi recognized as such across the Maratha territories, you know, not just in far-flung regions, but even at their, their core. So these contradictions in, in, in the processes of documentation, I think, have allowed me to hope slightly larger sort of, uh, you know, uh, cautionary kind of arguments about about what centralization actually might have, have meant on an everyday. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much. And just returning to the everyday level, which is what punctures this larger centralizing narrative, I want to think talk about uh, the emergence of new subjectivities fashioned by writing. And here, your discussion of the expansion of Modi writing focuses on what focuses on emergent genres of texts on writing that had produced the figure of the scribe as a writer. So can you share more for our listeners on how these texts allowed you to trace what you call uh, really beautifully the writerly self and what this writerly self tells us about the social world of Modi, Modi writing and documentation? Oh, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed working with these scribal manuals, which are, are sort of collectively known as, as Mistak. Uh, so they're a genre of uh, record-keeping manuals that sketch documentary practices and provide basic numeracy, accountancy uh, training for, for scribes. And what's interesting is that they also detail all kinds of do's and don'ts and allow us to glimpse some of the ideas that governed Modi documentation and uh, a kind of discourse of the ideal writer or lekhak. Um, so on the one hand, there's like a great emphasis on the actual writing work uh, with details on how to hold the pen with how many fingers, how to make ink, uh, etc. No matter what the hierarchy of the particular scribe, right? And and then there's all kinds of pri pragmatic advice about how various scribes at different levels should conduct themselves in different circumstances. So, for example, um, if you're a scribe, uh, you know, in the main office, when your boss is around, how you should be discreet and yet make yourself seen and, and, and heard. Uh, or when you're away on in the field on revenue collection, how you should kind of lord it over the locals, how to make sure that there's no theft how to understand uh, the local vocabulary and diversity to make sure that the locals aren't cheating the state out of revenue. So all of, of this is mixed in, in the text. And overall, overall the, the texts kind of uh, advise a blend of politic behavior, moral conduct, and loyal service. Uh, but some of this advice also provides glimpses into the everyday working of the daftar, which ranges from the mundane to the violent, right? So, for example, how you should not sleep or sing at your desk and what superstitions are there about walking over paper or holding a book to your pillow when you're, when you're lying down. But also to find out if you, how to find out if your employer is given to bursts of violence. Uh, so, through all of these instructions, we get the picture of an ideal writerly self, you know, the ideal Modi scribe who was to be the backbone of the expanding Maratha administration. But what I also found interesting is that this is not a Munshi or a Karana who is 
kind of the pragmatic foil to the fancies of the the king um this scribe occupies the middling rounds of the scribal hierarchy and this middling round was key to successful revenue collection and uh, the mistups kind of allow us to then glimpse the expanding maratha state's anxieties over these uh, revenue concerns and uh, the writerly self is is also sort of articulated as one structured by bodily moral practice and and by caste so like i said earlier uh, one mistake in particular identifies modi as the perfect solution for brahmins to be able to work for a living but in a way that would not threaten their caste power in so uh, so in other words i mean the ability to write and con- and control literacy increased virtue and shored up caste power for this writerly self but in bureaucratic context it also brought a kind of ambivalent negotiation and intimacy with spaces and materials that threatened this this power so there's one uh, example where uh, the mistak advises against using a particular kind of tip for a pen because that uh, item called sarsil is uh, haram uh, for for muslims so uh, this ambivalence also tells us about the kind of multilingual but also multireligious social world of the scribe even as as caste difference and hierarchy remained critical to the cultivation of literacy and and scribal employment yeah thank you so much and just since we're talking about this genre of text i wanted to kind of briefly segue uh to think about archiving practices and their linkage to collective identities and you know just drawing attention to your uh, critical engagement with the history of archiving practices in the text so in the book you draw attention to the highly stratified and multilingual world of writing that over the course of the 20th century comes to be subsumed under a maratha archive and becomes uh, signs of maratha power so can you talk to us about how modern archiving practices have shaped our understandings of pre-modern writing practices and more broadly of languages and linguistic identities and perhaps uh, your reflections on some ways in which you hope future work in south asian history might expand or on or develop these insights of your research and methodology yeah um, okay bear with me this will probably be a long answer uh um many of you know many of the archival sources of the marathas uh, were collected and and some were printed uh, after being transcribed into devanagari by nationalist historians in the 19th and early 20th centuries and many of these materials are uh, papers of different families of officials and when they were printed they usually as so and so gharanyaadze kagad right as so and so family daftar and um one outcome of this was the underlying idea that um in this uh, nationalist historiography um this these household collections were individual parcels of a larger coherent maratha archive and that the peshwas daftar was in a sense the national law the central archive of the maratha uh, state but in the course of reconstructing the modi scriptural economy um, i followed some paper trails of grants and disputes to see what all went into actually getting and retaining scribal offices particularly hereditary offices and there's a whole grid of different genres of documents that's involved in in securing and maintaining these these offices 
And those who secured the grants uh, basically maintained this documentation at the household level and control over the actual physical paperwork, ensuring that it's up to date, etc., is key to the enjoyment of this this grant. So, so one of the arguments that I've tried to make is that rather than uh, see these household collections as as mere units of an already existing centralized archive with a capital A as it were. We have to see these household archives as part of a more dispersed early modern archiving uh, process and see it in tension with centralizing authority that kept periodically requiring the refreshing of paperwork and scrutiny of all grants. And this centralizing authority was not necessarily the the Maratha state only, but, uh, you know, from the Sultanate on down to to, uh, the Marathas, as well as many other uh, states that also uh, used Modi at different levels in their their administrations. Um, Now, the other outcome of of, uh, modern archiving practices is that even where household collections are multilingual or multiscriptal, it's the Marathi Modi portions that have been printed monolingually with mere mentions that there's Farsi Mazkur here or Kannad Mazkur there. And once again, this has reinforced the idea that the Maratha archive was basically Marathi in Modi script uh, and using sort of very recent boundaries and imaginations to assign sources to different regional uh, histories. Um, and this we see continues today, right? I mean, with linguistic states kind of part parceling out different language materials uh, uh, to each other. So one of the multilingual and uh, multiscriptal household archives that I looked at from the Dharwad region, um, you know, sort of made me realize that the deployment of scripting language has to be very carefully plotted at different levels of administration and correspondence uh, at the village, at the Pargana or at the state, uh, you know, at large to understand how different areas and local chiefs were subdued or integrated into, into larger forms of power. And, I mean, yeah, the the modern archiving practices and frames that have selectively brought these materials to light to us present their limitations. I mean, you know, it's not just the linguistic state now, but the colonial bureaucracies also did a lot of violence to older multilingual archives. But for the Western Deccan in particular, and I'm sure for, for other regions as well, there are still vast numbers of family connections that can yield rich insights into early modern archiving and language practices, right? To ask sort of deeper questions about how and why particular documents were sought or granted, why particular scripts were deployed. And and that I think can can yield fresh insights about local speech forms and identities, you know, shifts in, in power structures or or about bilingual world practice. Uh, there's still a lot here that can be can be done. Um, in terms of methodology, I mean, I was lucky to have Kannada in addition to Marathi being from, you know, the bilingual Tharwad region myself. But I was even luckier to have friends and colleagues working on different regions where there were Modi archives, you know, whether Tanjavur or, or Malwa, to help me work through the multiscriptal materials. And I've benefited greatly, particularly from Nandini Chatterjee's work on a similar family archive and reading kind of Perzo Modi or Modi Rangdi materials with her and and with Dominic Wendel. Um, So collaborative work, you know, across languages and regions is perhaps one way to transcend these difficulties in recreating the early modern scribal 
uh, self, uh, you know, who had multilingual uh, uh, skills all in, in, in one body. Uh, right, that actually kind of touches on another question that I had about training for for, for reading these uh, manuscripts because you say that, you know, Modi documents in Tanjore are different in subtle ways from those produced in different parts of the Maratha Empire. And I wondered while reading how you trained yourself uh, to read those uh, so those kind of subtle differences and whether you had any suggestions for aspiring younger scholars. <laughs> um, yeah, practice, practice, practice uh, in short. But uh, in, you know, in 2008, I took some Modi classes uh, with the gentleman M.R. Kulkarni in, in Pune. And after sort of getting the basics of the script and learning a little bit about conventions and so on, uh, it was, yeah, practice, uh, continuous practice. And it's if there's a break of a couple of months, it takes uh, time again for the eyes to get used to the script. And then again, it's it's regular practice. Uh, that's really my kind of main suggestion for yoga scholars who, who are working with Modi or with any any sort of, uh, you know, uh, cursive script or, or historical uh, script. With Modi, uh, there are now document collections that are published with the Modi and the Balbot side by side. And, and that helps when you are uh, starting out. And my own reading experience with the script actually gave me insight into the situated and localized styles and scribal skills that Modi documentation involved, right? That that the Tanjavur variant was different from the way it was written in, in the Deccan versus in, in, in Malwa, etc. Uh, because every time you sit with a new set of documents from a different place, it's a bit hard to get into the script, as it were. And then after a while, the letters start to separate and make sense. And you figure out familiar hands, familiar strokes, and curlicues, and and then the guesswork of difficult letters becomes a bit more educated. Um, but even so, you know, place names and names of people are the hardest, uh, the, the things that you stumble over the most, unless you sit with a map and names of villages in the district and and, and try to, to, to work them out. And this is where you realize that local knowledge of people and places must have been key in, in reading these materials and where family recruitment, etc. helped in, in providing exclusive skills uh, 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 to people uh, you know, to have control over these scribal jobs and 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 materials uh, as well. Uh, there's, I mean, there are written guides, uh, but there's also now a lot of support on the web too, where people share documents and decipher them together, and they share information on frequently appearing abbreviations. You know, formulae to convert between suhoor and fasli and shakairas. And there's been a, a resurgence in Modi reading and training, but it's often instrumental and, and kind of shorn of the larger documentary or, or archiving histories that I've tried to kind of explore in, in this book. So one thing I also feel that, I mean, rather than the informational content of the documents, uh, you know, there's there should be equal attention paid to the form and, and the documentary conventions, the meanings of marginalia, of the format of the paper, etc. That methodological training of, of reading for convention, materiality, and content is is very, very important. Yeah, thank you. So I remember an interview you gave on Sahapedia many years ago in which you brought up how to bridge, you know, the, the differences in the worlds of kind of 
local knowledge and very situated work happening in regional archives to some of the broader concerns of the Anglo-American Academy. And I was, as I was reading the text, I saw how beautifully and skillfully and kind of bring those, bridge those divides. And um, just in that way, kind of touched upon this, but just to go back, since this is one of the kind of big, larger narratives of the transition from Persian to Marathi that your work uh, very nicely questioned, uh, you know, by talking about the highly segmented and specialized use of languages and, and scripts across different scales, and by drawing attention to materiality and practice, you help us kind of reassess the conventional understanding of the relationship between these languages, and in particular of this, uh, the, you know, the abstractions of cosmopolitan and vernacular that otherwise frame this relationship. So I wondered if you wanted to expand uh, some ways in which uh, some arguments that you offer in terms of, you know, new ways to understand the relationship between Persian and Marathi in this period. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the, the, the whole Persian-Marathi relationship has always been looked at in, in somewhat simplistic ways. I mean, the Marathi nationalists argue that Persian invaded Marathi much like the Muslims invaded the Deccan, and that Persian was ousted from the language after Shivaji commissioned the lexicon uh, Rajvevahar Kush uh, to replace Persianate vocabulary with Sanskrit uh, some words. Uh, and the historical framing, uh, modern historical framing that is of Marathi as descended from Sanskrit has also added to this nationalist perspective that Marathi was sort of restored as it were in the Maratha administration. Uh, the opposite view has tended to see the Persian influence on a vernacular Marathi as but one example of a wider cosmopolitan Persianate uh, phenomenon. And I've tried to argue that if we look at the Modi scriptural economy, a much more complex picture emerges both about the deep reach of the Persianate, but also its its limits, as it were. And here again, along with Nandini Chatterjee's work, I found Nile Green's uh, argument about the need to look at prosographic influences, uh, you know, rather than a kind of sweeping Persianate phenomenon, very useful in in situating this Perso-Marathi uh, relationship. And I've called the sort of Modi documentation Modi graphia after the Persographia in a couple of places. Uh, and we find that after the Rajvevar Kosh, there's definitely some rollback of Perso Arabic vocabulary in the uh, Maratha state, right? But not entirely. Uh, many Persianate documentary genres continue to be important in Modi documentation, um, even if some of them get different names. <clears throat> and in the Mestaks, we find that the emphasis is not really on, on translation or finding Marathi equivalents for Persian, but it's on just learning a whole gamut of, of vocabulary that is simply designated as local. So today we might be able to identify it as Tatsang or Persianate or, or Marathi, but that provenance is, is not of importance in everyday revenue documentation. So where, where Modi and Perso-Arabic script uh, differences and transcriptions do matter, we see is in, in uh, diplomatic correspondence, uh, you know, as signs of Maratha versus Mughal or Maratha versus Nizam power. So there is there is a complex uh, relationship. And finally, um, you know, one of the archives that I looked at again was this local chieftain's 
household archive from from Tharwad, uh, which was a trilingual, triscriptal archive of Persian, Marathi, and and Kannada, where you know there was a clear demarcation of language and script. Right, Kannada at the village levels, Marathi Modi for correspondence at the Pargana level, and the Persian from the court, from the Sultanate court, but. This did not map onto Sultanate or or Maratha administrations or to a neat invasion story. In fact, I mean, Marathi is present in this region from before the Maratha state under the Adil Shahis itself, right? Um, so there is a gradual increase in Marathi with the arrival of the the Maratha state. But again, Kannada Marathi interactions are a two-way street. So we see Kannada uh, vocabulary creeping into Marathi documentation and Marathi document conventions kind of influencing Kannada correspondence uh, as well. So through this Dharwad archive, what I've emphasized is the need to parse these language and script choices in terms of not just like language, broad, big language categories, but in terms of the type of document, the forms of address, uh, vocabulary, etc. And the the biggest kind of contradiction uh, uh, I, I sort of emphasize is that even as Persian vocabulary receded from Modi documentation, it was Modi Graphia's kind of ability to adapt and be a vehicle for Persianate um, Persographic document genres and and vocabulary that propels the kind of spread of Modi Modi in the uh, peninsula in the 18th century. Right? So this is why I've uh, avoided using the terms cosmopolitan and and vernacular because this complex entanglement of language and script across regions it doesn't quite capture what I've sort of called the messiness of process and the sense of rooted locality as well as trans-regional usage that we see in 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 uh, uh, Modi. Although, I must say, I did toy with the idea of, of like, calling, you know, Modi a kind of shadow cosmopolitan, uh, you know, script uh, in at one point, but then I, I abandoned it uh, <laughs> in the course of writing. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Yeah, well, you know, moving to another major narrative of transition that this 400-year history that you trace is that of the shift from the early modern to the colonial. And in the second part of the book, you, again, with this framework of messiness and proliferation, trace the shifts as well as continuity uh, in, in this world. So, you know, we already have the scholarship of literary historians working in other regions who have also similarly traced the histories of how new cultural and institutional practices produced modern identities and affective communities of Indian languages. 
And your account of similar changes in Marathi emphasizes the messy and unfinished nature of this process. And a particular tension that emerges is with Marathi's attempts um, at one, on the one hand to claim a Sanskritic legacy and on the other hand an aspirational, popular, Prakrit-centric history. So can you elaborate on how you trace this, uh, the emergence of this tension through your reading of seemingly technical debates about the interplay between phonology and etymology, and perhaps also how this uh, tension between Marathi's aspirations continues to inflect cultural and political debates in the region today? Yeah, you know, uh, arranging the, the chapters in the second half of the book was the hardest part uh, for me. Um, I I wanted to start, uh, you know, with how Modi's scribal practices changed in the colonial bureaucracy, what eventually became chapter six. But in order to do that, I had to ch uh, sketch the changes that came about in language pedagogy, in script reforms and the education system. So I could explain how new scribal recruits trained in colonial schools fared in the in the bureaucracy. Uh, but again, in order to then situate this new pedagogy and, and reforms, I had to explain how Marathi became an object of historical study and how the frames of Prakrit and Sanskrit genealogy and historical linguistics shaped the way in which it was written, taught, and 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 reformed. Um, so yeah, so the process was messy, not only in the course of Marathi's modernization, but in my sort of narrating it, uh, of it as as well, and. Um, it produced much sort of tearing of air at the time, but in the process, it, it cemented my hypothesis that what seemed like very distinct spheres, you know, of revenue documentation and colonial surveys on the one hand, and the business of revising textbooks with the right orthography, or the very technical grammar debates on whether the terminal vowel of a Marathi word should be short or long, all these were actually part of the same broad process of language modernization and of producing a regional vernacular that was fit for the twin pillars of the modern state, right? The, the school and, and the bureaucracy. And uh, in, in, in kind of laying this out again, what I found was that the story was not simply of, uh, you know, Marathi as a vernacular being remade in the image of, of Sanskrit and, and English, but uh, two contrasting approaches to the way it was located in, in, in history. So one viewed... Marathi as a descendant of Sanskrit via Prakrit, um, and uh, the other viewed it as essentially a dis descendant of, of Prakrit only, uh, distinct from, from Sanskrit. So at one level, this was to do with the problem of making the regional language distinctive uh, and clarifying its, its deshi character, as it were. But this debate had many implications because the question of Marathi's precise links to Sanskrit and, and pra, Prakrit had uh, conservative, Brahmanical versus liberal or in some cases progressive uh, connotations. And um, arguing for or against a Sanskrit legacy in particular also became associated with, with caste uh, and the Brahmanical legacy in, in regional culture. So what uh, uh, seemed like a kind of arcane debate became very urgent because it and it and it informed cultural and political discourse and policy over the course of the 20th uh, century um, how 
Sanskrit words that are current in Marathi would be spelled, whether or not some letters that were used only in Sanskrit words would remain in the Marathi alphabet or not. Um, and so all of these became kind of urgent questions that, that remain important today and periodically resurface uh, in script and orthography uh, debates. Um, and the latest is also the, you know, uh, the application to the central government uh, that was made a decade ago for declaring Marathi as a classical language uh, on the grounds that it is essentially Prakrit, the same as Prakrit from the last 2000 years with little or no uh, connection to, to, to Sanskrit. So, so this, uh, you know, in a way, I was also trying to kind of make sense of, of what seems like a persistent language and, and social problem in, in uh, the Marathi public sphere. And, um, you know, that's how I kind of, of, of went to these, these phonological, etymological debates on the one hand, but also the, the, the bureaucratic reforms on the other. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, that chapter impressed, so, so impressive, impressed in scope. Uh, but but this is a good point for me to ask a question about this uh, Marathi regional and national aspirations. So I really uh, find you know the discussion of the tension between region and nation opened up by this unresolved debate about Marathi's historical legacy. Very interesting. And my own attempts to study these debates in the context of Marathi socialists' involvement in this Maharashtra movement in the 1950s reveals how productively socialists use this tension to make claims both for the democratic aspirations of the Marathi people or Janata and build these claims on Marathi's exemplary position within the Hindi national cultural imaginary. And in fact, they use this exemplary link to the Hindi nation to delegitimize other contemporary regional aspirations, particularly the Dravidian movement in Tamil Nadu. So, I wonder whether you see the regional and the national as contradictory or perhaps productive tension and relationship allowing for Marathi's singular claims to representativeness. Uh, well, yeah, thank you for this question. Um, you know, the, the, the regional, national and the Marathi-Hindi relationship is uh, so frustrating and, and difficult to resolve easily because... I mean, there are so many contradictory strands and multiple positions in terms of language and, and script. And um, as you say, you know, the Marathi politicians across the spectrum have used Marathi's close link with Hindi via vocabulary as well as via the, the, the Nagari script to highlight the primacy of the nation over the region, uh, to highlight Marathi's special relationship with the nation uh, and also to to downplay or even delegitimize other regional uh, imaginations. Um, and in some cases, uh, you know, this articulation of closeness with Hindi and Devnagri, I think, uh, spurred on, uh, you know, uh, Marathi's technological modernization with standardized and improved uh, types at first and later typewriters. Um, the extent of sort of national level Devnagri script reform certainly helped in positing it as a democratic script, uh, you know, that's ready for uh, a linguistic state of Maharashtra during the, the Save the Maharashtra movement. And uh, the historiographical discourse of positing the Marathas as the ultimate 
kind of protectors of the Indian nation and therefore a kind of Maharashtrian distinctiveness that has also yielded political returns at national and regional levels in, in the past. So, seen this way, it appears as if this engagement with the national has been a very productive tension for Marathi regional identity, right? Allowing it to make negotiations with the center that are not available to other regions as, as easily. Uh, and that being said, uh, I think also that the specter of being swallowed up in the nation has halted this productive engagement. Uh, and the prakritic Sanskritic tensions have kind of played out here uh, as well. So even folks, for example, who agreed with Savarkar's uh, Bhasha Shuddhi program of, you know, eliminating Persian and Arabic vocabulary from Marathi, disliked the excessively Sanskritized neologisms that he coined and sort of despaired at the artificially Sanskritized Hindi that he was upholding as a, as a model. Um, um, on, you know, much earlier, uh, one of the writers, uh, R.B. Gunjikar, in the 19th century, also sort of called very early on for, for the adoption of Hindustani as the national language, uh, um, but with Modi as, as the script. So this was a, you know, sort of different kind of negotiation of the regional and the, and the national. And calls to bring back Modi periodically surface in the Marathi public sphere in order to shore up the languages kind of distinctiveness against what are seen as twin juggernauts of English and, and Hindi. And there's also been debates about bringing back Palbot instead of like a standardized Nagari because Unicode now doesn't, you know, can can render the, the peculiarities of Palbot uh, in a way that typewriters or print uh, types could not. So I think in, in both in terms of script and language, these anxieties about the the kind of bear hug, as it were, of Hindi and Devanagari continue to exist in, in the Marathi regional uh, sphere, you know, despite the kind of, of uh, positive engagements that are made between between the, the um, national and the regional in terms of language and script. Right. And that actually is one of the most fascinating things between Modi to Nagari, because you sh show how debates about orthography or how language was to be represented in script was so central to larger questions about authenticity and belonging. But given the account of the proliferating Mori scriptural economy traced in the first part of the book, can you tell our listeners why and how Nagari emerges as the modern face of Marathi, but also why do a range of actors across the political spectrum rally behind Nagari? And perhaps share some of the messy and contradictory fallouts of this process that you bring up again in the conclusion of the book. Um, yeah. Um, you know, if you start with the the, the history of, of print and, and textbooks and script reform in 19th century Bombay, with the idea that, that Modi was somehow bracketed in a dusty corner of the bureaucracy and somehow irrelevant to language and orthography debates because it was cursive, it was opaque, whatever. I mean, it seems reasonable. Um, it's it's only when you take the sheer size and scope of, of the Modi scriptural economy in the century and, and a half 
prior uh, and especially the early engagements with type and, and grammar in the colonial period where Modi was very much present. Um, you know, that's when you realize that the Nagari equation with Marathi is not an inevitable process or, or one simply to do with sort of technological determinism, but it's a process that's imbued with, with history. Um, and there was certainly a, a technological boost to Nagari as a script more suited to, to print. Uh, yet, I mean, children learned both scripts in schools at the lower level, you know, for a very long time. And one of the arguments I've made in the book is that print shaped new practices of handwriting too in the colonial period. And I've plotted how gradually Nagari came to replace Modi in domains where it was previously uh, used, uh, in policemen's notebooks, in offices, uh, and especially in places where supervisors needed to read and audit their inferiors' uh, writing. So, so in other words, there is a gradualist part to this uh, story. But what I've tried to show in chapters 5 and, and 6 of the book is how, once again, you know, like in the early modern era, but differently, a host of ideas came to govern the usage of Modi and, and Nagari. So the, the colonial bureaucracy saw both the Modi script and the scribe as essentially opaque and, and inscrutable. And there are many reforms in bureaucratic writing to change Modi uh, scribal practice to make it easier to audit for forgery and, and mistakes. But by the early 20th century, this impatience and suspicion about untrustworthy Brahmin scribes, it grew into an effort to remove it altogether and replace it with Nagari as somehow inherently more legible and accessible to the public at large. And here is where a, a number of, of actors rally around this, this move. Um, the, alongside the colonial state, uh, I mean, there are um, now critiques from the non-Brahmin movement, uh, which also protested Brahmin control over jobs and the administration. And Chhatrapati Shahu of Kolhapur is, is one of the earliest to forbid the use of Modi in his, in his administration as a way to also undercut this Brahmin uh, power. So both Modi's script and Brahmin's scribe then come to represent a kind of illegible barrier to a more accessible and transparent administration, which is something that the Sayyokta Maharashtra, uh, you know, sort of wish to present a technologically kind of viable and updated language and script kind of likes very much. So all of this then kind of shows up Nagari's uh, fortunes. And one of the first things that the new Maharashtra state does is to prepare a set of orthographic rules for Nagari and, and Nagari as the official script in order to kind of authorize a, a, a writing system for the language in the public sphere in the in the new new state. Uh, of course, I mean, one of the things that I've, I've kind of said is that this begs the question of how, how many people were actually literate in any script uh, at all, uh, right, in, in making kind of uh, Nagari uh, symbolically uh, transparent and, and accessible. And Modi's receding, of course, not just from Maharashtra, but from other regions as well, was also very uneven uh, as people who were literate in it were sort of needed again, and indeed are still needed, uh, you know, time and again for reading older records and to, to bolster the, the symbol of Modi, uh, you know, as, as representing the, the glorious Marathi past. Right, yeah. Um, and, you know, I had... Uh, questions to ask about the fascinating story of handwriting in the world of print, but also how print 
kind of redefines uh, the relationships between public and private, but also how, you know, despite these efforts to transform the writerly self into the ideal modern clerk, uh, there are ways in which, uh, and you show beautifully how traditional control over literacy and writing practices allows caste capital to be reproduced within these new emerging modern bureaucracies. But unfortunately, I realize that we are running out of time. So for that, listeners will just have to read the book. But I'm going to end by asking you a little bit about the contemporary stakes of the story of script and writing practices that you trace uh, in the conclusion. So you show how recent technological changes, and you mentioned Unicode fonts, have made it possible to invoke Balbod again for its Marathiness, thus reopening the debate about authenticity and modernity. But that these efforts to define authenticity are now taking place uh, under a much, uh, in a much more diverse regional public sphere that spans print and electronic publics with ever proliferating forms of language use and practice. So how do you read the ways in which uh, changing technological apparatuses intersect with competing claims to represent community? And what possibilities do you see emerging in the future for how we research, write, and think about the history and identity of Marathi? Oh, oh wow. This is a difficult question. And, and honestly, I don't know if I can do, do justice to it. Uh, I mean, you know, it's a phase in, in incredible flux uh, as so many kind of new forms of writing in print and electronic formats are colliding with new forms of orality, you know, whether YouTube, Insta Reels or, or you know, visual forms such as memes and, and so on. And I mean, this is a world that needs much more careful exploration. Um, and I've, I've sort of enjoyed, you know, dipping a toe here and then kind of writing a little bit in Marathi, reading a lot and figuring my way around the kind of contemporary Marathi public uh, sphere. And sometimes it feels as if, you know, the more things change, the more they remain the same because whatever the new media, they also tend to become vehicles for the same old debates, uh, you know, historical debates, caste debates, language debates and so on. And uh, even as it seems like the forms of language use and users are expanding by the minute in incredibly exciting ways, and that is that is definitely true. Uh, there's also the kind of dark cloud of, of you know, the sheer ideological sway of right-wing nationalism and caste divisiveness on the one hand, and then the sheer size of the English and the increasingly kind of Hindi influences on, on the other, which make us then question just how viable all of this also also is. So, so, so there's that, you know, which kind of makes me go back and forth, and I don't think I have a, a, a definite... Uh, you know, sort of uh, prediction to make or or a thing, but I I, I think it's really definitely one of the most exciting frontiers of of studying language and and script. What I found interesting is is to also look at how the old survives in the new, right? So as I looked at how handwriting survives in print, I'm I'm sort of looking at also how the older print forms kind of of influence new electronic magazines and things uh, uh, as well and and even as as we have Facebook or, or all these other social media and so on we still have typewriters we still have shorthand we still have you know alongside Unicode and and all of that too so so how these things coexist is also I think a question that can can open up you know social and and other sort of political uh, questions 
in terms of how we research, uh, you know, write and think about Marathi and other, uh, you know, regional languages, I think digitization and online availability of materials has made a huge difference in terms of access. I mean, even though, you know, the idea that something's only out there and worth reading if it's immediately downloadable as a PDF has, has now gathered ground. But I, I wish that, you know, there were more work on but not just on, on making something sort of like scanning things and putting them up there, but on, on OCR, on technologies of transcription, on the kind of metadata categories that one, you know, that can and should be created for digital archives, on developing sort of SNA uh, tools or, or other technologies to take, you know, sort of fresh looks at, at these old family collections or multilingual archives to understand multilinguality script and, and so on in, in, in different uh, ways. The, the figure of the amateur scholar has always been a powerful one in Marathi historiography and public life. And there is, like, in some quarters, very interesting conversation between people in different fields, uh, you know, with people who have software skills versus those who are in, in humanities and so on, uh, bringing LaTeX or, or new fonts, etc. into the, the language. But it's very small scale with little institutional funding sort of worth the name. So all of this is also very, very piecemeal. So, so yeah, so some hope, some caution, uh, you know, uh, some hold with the new um, is what I would kind of, of take uh, in order to, to think about this, this new exciting language and, and script uh, frontier. Perfect. Thank you. And just speaking about the future, what are you working on now and what can we expect to read from you in the near future? Uh, oh, um, well, you know, I'd, I'm beginning work on a biography of this figure called uh, Durga Bhagwat, who was a remarkable uh, writer, um, activist, and anthropologist uh, of the 20th uh, century. And uh, her life kind of spans the, the, the Marathi 20th century, uh, as it were. And she participated in a lot of different uh, cultural, political, and literary debates. And I'm just toying with the idea of writing a biography as a way to kind of think about the uh, Marathi, uh, you know, a kind of intellectual history of, of the, the Marathi 20th uh, century to think about how disciplines like anthropology or folklore and so on uh, were vernacularized or how they, they, they uh, um, developed in, in the regional public sphere and also how... Uh, uh, literature particularly as, has served as a very important domain for thinking about social science in, in uh, Marathi and in, in other languages uh, as well. So kind of, of uh, a hot pot as it were right now, but uh, uh, put together through the life of, of Durga Bhagwat is what I'm, I'm thinking of. Okay, I'm genuinely thrilled to hear that because she's a figure who is an important part but hasn't it's not someone I gave the attention that she deserved in my uh, attempts to explore the history of Marathi socialism, where she also figures in the Rashtra Seva Dal and so on. But yeah, but perhaps we'll talk about that off air. But thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for answering these questions. And thank you so much for sharing uh, more about your book uh, and for this fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you for wonderful questions and, and I had a very good time. Thank you so much, Niyarika. Thank you. Thank you.